as you churn there. Let me give us a heads up of where we're going. For now, a couple months, we've been talking about that we're going to be starting a new series, that we're going to be starting um, a new book in the Old Testament. And uh, I actually, uh, we're going to be doing, starting a series studying 12 books. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but uh, we're going to be walking through all the minor prophets. So all the books that you probably skip over, we'll study them. Uh, and uh, we'll study all the minor prophets one a week for three months. Uh, there's 12 books. And, uh, if, and so one of the things that I want to encourage you, even starting this week, is that for you to start reading them. Uh, start reading uh, with Hosea, and then keep going till you get to Malachi, and just read one book a week. If you want to, if you're really uh, want to read all of them, you can. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's there's twelve of them. So, uh, but I encourage you to start reading and start praying that God will speak to our church through these books. Uh, in Romans, Paul says this. He says, "For what for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. And so, so I want us to start praying this verse for our body, that, that, that we will pray these for the next three months, that we'll together be instructed. That These, these words from these books are not going to be just like, oh, yeah, back in the day. No, but there will be some instruction for us, be, that we'll be encouraged by them, and that ultimately that we'll have hope. So I want us to pray in that way as a body. Uh, so that's what we'll be starting next week, and then we'll be doing that till Christmas. Um, but this week, we'll be finishing our vision and mission series. So last week, we talked about our vision. We talked about our vision. We, we talked about what we want to see as a church and the, the heartbeat of everything we do, the heartbeat of all our actions. And I want to run fairly quickly again through our vision uh, this morning, because without the vision, without the vision, the whole conversation about mission doesn't make a ton of sense. And so our vision is to see the gospel transform everything. We want the good news of Jesus to transform everything. And the reason we need this good news is because we are all born in sin and can't save ourselves by ourselves. Uh, Paul, in, in, in Romans, again, he, he describes this condition well. He says in Romans 5.12, that therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. So sin it came through Adam and death through sin, and that death spread to all of us because we all sin. And that's the bad news, Right? Sin and death are, are the disease that has infected all of us, but gets even worse. I said this last week, not only are we sick, dying creatures, but we also are separated from the one who can cure us. Uh, Father is holy, and we are sinful and unholy, and those two things can't interact with each other. And that's the bad news, very bad news for us. But here's the good news in, in light of the bad news, that Jesus, that God's son, came and lived a perfect life for us. Jesus died on the cross, the death that we deserve. Jesus paid the penalty of sin, and Jesus conquered death. It's not what we have done, but what Jesus did in our place. 
It's a declaration. It's a declaration that we are righteous because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that declaration, that declaration changes everything. It changes how we live our life. It changes how we interact with others. It changes our emotions. It changes our thoughts, uh, all of our relationships, all of our actions. Uh, all of us are affected by the gospel. And as a church, as a body, we, we lean into that. We believe the gospel is transforming everything. And as the gospel is transforming everything, as the gospel is transforming everything as we, and that's, this is where the mission comes in. This is where the mission com- comes in as we worship God in community. So the gospel transforms everything as we worship God in community, as we love others, as we engage the culture, as we seek to make disciples of Jesus. And we'll walk through each one of these statements to make a lot more clarity. And all, all of these statements and everything that our mission as a church is rooted in our vision to see the gospel transform everything. So let's, let's jump in. Acts, Acts chap, chapter 2. You should be there now. And starting in verse 42. So Luke is describing the early church here. And he says this in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So let's stop, stop there for a second. So Peter preached a sermon uh, about Jesus, right? So he preaches a sermon about Jesus. He preached a sermon that is saturated with the message of the gospel. And what happens? God saves many to himself. Now those God saved to himself are having a realignment of worship in their soul. So before, they probably didn't want to devote themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship. Like before Peter preached that sermon, they probably didn't desire that. That was not something they were like, man, I want to I wanna learn from the apostles. They didn't have that, but now they do. Before, they didn't want to learn more about Jesus, but now they do. Something in their heart came alive. John Piper says this. He says, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart that to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. You see, these, these early Christians wanted to know God that's the first thing. And then as they grew in their knowledge of God, as they understood the gospel, something happened to their hearts. Their hearts responded by rightly placing God above all things, delighting in God, being satisfied with God, and then relating and responding to others from that place. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 6.45, the, the good person out of a good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil of his, uh, of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So the way we speak reveals what we truly think 
and what we really worship. Uh, a way to test what you worship is to look at your thought life. Like if you think about your thought life for a second right now, it probably reveals what you truly worship. And if that's not enough, uh, if that didn't answer, if, if I said that statement to you like, hey, think about your thought life, and, and that was like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know what I, I think about. Well, then ask someone close to you what you talk about the most. Uh, ask someone close to you what you talk about the most. That is an indicator of what or who you are worshiping. So whatever, whatever the most you think about or the most you speak about, that's probably what your heart is actually worshiping. Uh, as one Christian songwriter put it, put it this way, I suppose what exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at most of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. So true worship, true worship can be... Can be Found by seeing what we think about, what we talk about, and what we fear, right? But true worship doesn't stop with our heart. True worship alters the heart. And then from that altered heart comes altered action. And so as Piper said in that quote that I read earlier, and then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. So, so that doesn't just stay in you, right? Like, so true worship it doesn't just stay in you. It, it, the joyful satisfaction of who you are in Christ overflows into acts of praise. Yeah, this is one of, our, one of the reasons that our mission statement is worship God in community. Even though worship, worship can and most of the time happens individually, it can't stay there. It can't stay there. It spills out, and as it spills out, it, it touches others. As you praise and declare and worship God, let those words, emotions, and actions touch others around you. I would even go a step farther about this conversation, that it's not just that touch others. I, I, I would say that you should invite others into this conversation. I would uh, say invite others into worship of God. Uh, a way of an example of this, if you go on a hike, invite somebody. Invite somebody to go with you. If you go to a park or library, in, if you're going to the park or library to throw a frisbee or go on the walk with, with a dog, invite someone to that. If you decide to run in the morning, invite someone. If you, if you want to watch a movie, invite someone. And when others are with you, your love for God flows from your heart in your words and actions towards them or towards seeing the beauty of God, right? So now we've been talking about worshiping God, and you can see how the first mission statement then moves naturally to the next mission statement of loving others, right? It's natural when you are worshiping God, it's natural to, to bring in others and proclaim that beauty with others so you love, other, uh, you love others. 
in Acts, the early Christians wanted to be around each other. They wanted to be around each other. We see that in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to apostles' teachings and the fellowship. And then in verse 44, describing this love and fellowship, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And it goes on to even explain some of other things. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread and in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So, so this, these early Christians, they, they, were, they, wanted to, they were around each other. They were around each other, and they were together and had all things in common. All those who believe spend time together. And one of the things that... As I read this, this text, that it's, it's very natural. It's a very natural description of them. They found ways to be together. They found ways to be together. And we know through Scripture, through other places, that God saves individuals, right? Like, God saved you individually. And then he then brings individuals together with other individuals to form a community, to form a family, to, to form a church family. And this family has certain air about them. Uh, John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does this family look like and what kind of aroma does it have? Love. Love. And here's the motivation for loving others. Jesus loved us and saved us. And Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, our, that is the motivation to love one another. That, that is the motivation to care for one another. Now, that is our motivation, but loving others is hard. Yeah. Loving others is hard. It's easy to know that we should love others. Like if we walk through this room and we're like, hey, should we love others? We're like, absolutely. <laughs> it's easy to talk about loving others, right? Where, where we're getting together, we're like, should, you know, loving others. You're like, yeah, that's right. We should be loving others. But it's, actually, but it's hard to actually do it. And the reason it's hard is because even though the power of sin has been destroyed in our hearts, the presence of sin remains for now. So our hearts still tend to prioritize ourselves. So instead of being defined by the love of the cross, I am defined by self-love, by self-interest. And this is what sin does. It turns our focus inward, and when that is the cause, then the whole conversation about loving others can be thrown out of the window. So how do we fight against that? How do we fight against that? It, see, it starts by seeing how we were loved first. It starts by seeing that while we were very, very not lovable, Christ loved us. And his love took him to the cross. It's seen that our God rolled up his sleeves and got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. 
It's seeing that. It's reading that. That's our Savior doing that. And when we're, we see that, when we hear that, something in our hearts wakes up, right? It's seeing that his love took him to the cross to take all our sins. It's, it's, it's seeing that, believing that. It's seeing that his love brought us into his family. So the remedy of selfishness and self-love is selfless Jesus and his selfless love on the cross. The cross of Jesus allows us to let go of ourselves, and that's why that is our motivation. The cross of Jesus allows us to care deeply for one another because we have been deeply cared for. It is hard. It is absolutely hard, but I want us to be a church that loves one another well. I'm sure all of us are a little weird in here. But, but our starting point is Jesus. That's our starting point. Everyone in this room has something in common. It's that, that the love of Jesus is written on our hearts. And what are we going to do with that love? Or a better question is, how are we going to love others? How are we going to love others? Let me, let me give a word of encouragement before, before going on for all of us in here. I think we do love others well. I think we as a body, we do love others well most times, sometimes. Especially, we love well those who come through the doors on Sunday. Uh, on Sunday, it doesn't matter if somebody comes for the first time or 50th time or 100th time, we as a body love well. We engage in conversation. We talk to one another. We try to see how their week was, and it's not superficial. It's, it's, there's some genuineness to it. It's good. We listen and talk and try to engage with one another. I even uh, have seen this happen. If someone has a need, I have heard others meeting that, that need. And so that's a beautiful thing because it shows that you have the Holy Spirit of love and you're motivated by His grace. So it's encouraging and you should be encouraged, right? But do we have room to grow? Absolutely. Uh, will there be a season in our church life that we won't love others well? I hope not. But that probably will happen. I've seen it in other churches that at one point or another, they were saying, man, we are the most loving church in town. And then uh, a few years later, it's like, they don't really love well. Will we go through that? Maybe. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we worship God in community, and then we love others. And then we move on to the next statement, and it's engage the culture. And Luke, uh, Luke says this in verse 47, that the early followers of Jesus were, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. Luke is describing followers of Jesus. and says that those who were a part of the church had favor with people around them. 
Right? This means that they didn't only care about the people in their church, but they knew people who were outside the church community. And that includes neighbors and coworkers, friends, shop owners, business owners, and that list goes on and on and on and on and on and on, right? And these first Christians had favor with those around them. This means that they were, they were local missionaries. Uh, I'm pretty sure they didn't define themselves that way, but that's exactly what they were. Uh, they had favor with those around them, and, the, and those around them appreciated them. And again, I just love how natural this sentence reads. It was, not, it was not prescribed for them. It was not a law that they were trying to obey and trying to go, oh man, we, we're not good at this, but we're trying super hard. No, it's just describing them. This, is, this was second nature to them. They were just, they were that. And I want us I want that to describe us. I want us to, to have favor with people around us. I want us to have favor with all the people. I want us to be local missionaries as a second nature. God has placed you in the city, city for a reason. Right? Whether you've been living here for three weeks or you've been living here for years, God placed you for a reason. You are at your job for a reason. If you are a student, there's a reason that people who are in your classrooms or in your even project group, smaller group of a classroom, you live in your neighborhood for a reason. The people who, you are, who are in your life, they're there for a reason. And that reason is for you to love them the same way Christ has loved you when you were rebelling against him. It's to love those around you well, period. That's the reason. There's nothing else attached to it. You, you love well. And eventually, God may use you to proclaim the message of reconciliation to them. He may use you. He may not. He may use you, though. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20, Paul is describing the message of reconciliation. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Right? So, so God doesn't make a mistake where he placed you. In fact, God makes his appeal through us because we are his ambassadors exactly where we are. He has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. We are representing representatives of Christ to the culture around us. So if you work, you're an ambassador of Christ at work. If you stay at home, you're an ambassador of Christ in your home. If you go to a coffee shop, you're an ambassador of Christ there. If you're doing yard work, you're an ambassador of Christ in your yard. If you're with your kids, you're an ambassador of Christ with your kids. In everything you do, you are representing Christ. So that means Christ is in your work. Christ is in your home. Uh, Christ is at the brewery or coffee shop that you're sitting at. Christ is there. We are his workmanship. We are on his mission. We are people who can't stop talking about Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith, and we want to share what God has done 
in us with the world. And so the question is, do you have favor with those around you? Do you have favor with those around you? Because that's the starting point. Start there. Love, love well, and in time, you will have favor with those around you. Then pray that God will use that favor for his glory. He may save some to himself through those relationships around you. With the early Christians, God added many to the church. Luke says, And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And God is the one who saves, and he always uses people. God will use you, and God will use me to invite others to himself. God will use us to expand his body. God will use our interaction with people around us to share the love that lives inside of us. And so that's our final mission statement that we seek to make disciples of Jesus. And disciple of Jesus is a person who's a learner of Jesus, who belongs in God's family and lives a life, lives a life that carries the aroma of Christ. And Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you have heard this many times. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. So the Great Commission summarizes what it means to be a missionary as a person who has favor with those around you. Go make disciples of all nations. And when God saves them, maybe they'll get baptized right away, maybe not. And then you spend a lifetime teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, teaching them of the great love of God, teaching them of, of grace, teaching them of the gospel. And being a missionary means sharing the gospel with the lost and continuing to share the gospel with the growing believers. And it's a lifelong pursuit. Let's talk about evangelism for a second, because I think we all track with the conversation after conversion, but what role do we play in evangelism? What role do we play in evangelism? Most of us in this room don't feel much like an evangelist. You know, when I say evangelism, some of you are like, he's going there, he's going there, I don't want him to go there, okay, we're going. Like, yeah, most of us don't feel like evangelist. The idea of sharing the gospel with someone can be terrifying, right? And quite frankly, you probably don't do it and you feel guilty about it. Like if we, if we were very frank with one, one another and talking about this, if you'd probably be like, yeah, I haven't really shared the gospel in years and I feel really horrible about that. And if you grew up in the church, this has been pounded into your thinking that everyone is an evangelist and you need to step up to the plate, get enough courage and bam, you're doing evangelism, right? Like that, that's, that's the message you have heard from, from being a little kid in the church growing up, if you grew up in the church. Uh, Michael Frost, he's a theologian, pastor from Australia, and he has a little book called Surprise the World, talks about this myth. He says that while we are all called on to share the love of Jesus with others, we're not all evangelists. He rightly points out that in the Bible, Paul affirms the gift of evangelists and that God gave the church evangelists as a gift. 
right? So, so we see this. We see this in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints of the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So we, we can see that some people in the church, not all, are evangelists. And if we will go around through this room, there's some of you in here who are evangelists, but there's some who are not. Okay? So that's the distinction here. So some are evangelists, some are not. So let's talk about those who are not. In the Bible, Paul also writes this as though all believers are to be evangelistic in their general orientation. Okay? We, we, you don't have to read a ton to see that Paul is an evangelist, right? Like, if you read through him, he always, in all the letters, describes himself as an apostle, and he also describes himself as an evangelist, proclaiming the word of God. And so in, in, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we see Paul talking one way about himself and others who are evangelists, and then he instructs the rest of the church how to conduct themselves towards unbelievers. I think this is beautifully put. So verse 2, he's describing himself as continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in, watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now he's moving on, describing others. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul is telling the church, pray for the gifted evangelists, Ask God to open doors for them to proclaim the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. But he doesn't ask them to pray the same way for themselves. Do you see that? Most of us are not gifted evangelists, but we are evangelistic believers. That means that we still share about Jesus. For, for this kind of evangelistic ministry, we should pray for wisdom in our conduct towards others, and we should look for opportunities to answer outsider questions when they arise. So an evangelist is one who proclaims the gospel. He, he's praying for opportunities. He's seeking opportunities to share the good news with anyone he interacts possibly all believers are to conduct their lives in a way that makes those around them ask questions about their beliefs, and they are to give answers to those who ask. Do you see the difference? Uh, do you see that it's not everyone is an evangelist? And you should prayerfully consider where you land in that conversation. If God has given you a gift of evangelist, then you should live in that gift but, but if you're not gifted that way, then live in the other description of you. Living a life that has an aroma of others seeing in and asking questions. Why do you believe what you believe? And then you speak. First uh, Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter says something similar to what we've been just describing. He says this, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So not all of us are gifted evangelists, but all of us to live lives that make others ask questions. Lives that are filled with hope. Uh, lives that others who, who see will want. Uh, lives that have Jesus written all over them. Lives that are not perfect, but lives that are saturated in Jesus so much. Whenever they talk to you, they go, man, you, you love Christ. What is it about you? that you, Why do you love Christ? You, you, you seem to be selfless. So guess what? When he says that, you get to talk about Jesus. You say, well, I know a selfless one, and that's what's motivating me, right? Like, that, that's what happens. And God, God will save people. The same way he added to the number of early Christians day by day, those who are being saved, the same way he will add to our church today. In a culture that is moving very much fastly to, from Christendom to post-Christendom, God is able to add to his church today. When God saves someone, then we as a church get to walk with them the rest of life, living together with God. Together, we are learners of Jesus who belong to his family and live lives that carry the aroma of Christ. You see, that's our mission. That's our mission as a church, to worship God, to, to, to continue to grow in knowing who he is and letting that press into our hearts and, and let that, that spill out on others. And as it spills out on others, you're loving others well. You're, you're loving others a lot. Not because you can, but obviously you can't, but you, your motivation is Christ. So you love because Christ has loved you. And as you're loving others well, that spills out not just here, but it spills out to the whole city. It's like you start to engage the culture by just, just having favor, by loving, period. You're inviting people into your, to your home. You're being hospitable. You're loving, caring, encouraging. And if, if you're an evangelist, you proclaim that truth. You proclaim the good news that's inside of you. If you're not, you just live a life that's tasteful, that's good, and others ask questions. See, that's who I want us to be. Because if we're doing that, then we are learners of Jesus. And that learn, being a learner of Jesus now is spreading to the rest of us. We're catching. Being like, man, you're a great husband. I want to learn more. How are you doing that? You're like, well, actually, I can't be a great husband. Because the only way I can be a great husband is because looking at Christ. You know? And so that goes into a conversation. Or, man, you're doing something great. And all of the greatness is always pushed back on Christ because he's the great one. You see, that's, all, that's the hope that I want for our church. And I want you to not just hear it, but live it. Live it. And we can only accomplish this. The only way we can accomplish this, if we, if we look to the head of the church, Jesus. Again, this is not a conversation. The reason I started our talk by telling us that, hey, it's rooted in our vision. Uh, you know, so, so it's not like, hey, church, roll up your sleeves. You can do this. Absolutely not. This is a 
roll, maybe roll up your sleeves and lean on Christ. Jesus is the creator of this church. He's the one who transforms hearts and who brings people from darkness to light. He's the one who marks our hearts with his spirit. And he's the one who brings us into a family. He's the one who, who transforms our desires. He's the one who transforms our worship. He's the one who allows us to love others. He's the one who even lets us speak his good name to the nations around us. It's him working in us and through us. And the Spirit empowers us to love one another. And if we have a chance to proclaim the gospel with those around us, it is actually him working through us because that's how we see it. And Colossians chapter 1 at 17 and 18 describes Jesus and says, and he, Christ, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might be preeminent. You see, all of this is possible as a church only through Jesus. Uh, if, if at any point you start to lean on your own strength or your own understanding of this, you're actually not walking in step with the church vision and mission. If you're like, man, I can get somebody to be saved, you're, you're doing it in your own strength. If, if you're like, man, I'm going to proclaim the gospel today, yeah, you have to start with Jesus. And so I want us to catch this uh, because I, I preach this once a year about our vision and mission, but I, I want us to be this. If somebody says, hey, what is the town church in Greeley that you're like, man, we want to see the gospel transform everything, and we are just people who worship God in community. We love others. We engage others, and we are, seek to make disciples of Jesus. And, that, and then it would be like, what are you talking about? And you get the chance to just talk about it because now they're asking questions, right? And it's actually the aroma of who you are. They don't even have to ask you about this. They're like, man, you know, what, what the beauty of, of Acts chapter 2 is that it is just others seeing that and describing them that way, not as them trying to be that. And I want us, that's been my prayer this week, that's been my prayer for the past two years, that we'll be a church that has the aroma of Christ and others seeing, looking in, or even as we are as a body experiencing this, we'll be like, man, we do have the aroma of Christ. We love well. We worship God in community. We engage the culture. We, uh, we, we do these things, but it's Christ doing in us and through us. So as we end, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. And may Jesus always be preeminent in, in each of our hearts in our church. May we worship God with, with us, with our all. May we be a church that loves others just as he loved us. May we engage the areas around us with, and win favor with those around us. And may we make disciples of Jesus over and over and over. May, may that be us. Let's pray.